Good evening, everyone. Good evening. How are you all doing today? How are you all doing today? We got a fun one today. There's many things to talk about. Oh, sorry about that echo. Uh, there's many things to talk about today. Um, got a pretty full schedule. Got also some really exciting announcements for the channel as well. So you know the drill, everyone. Like the channel. Make sure, I mean, like the video, I should say, as you're coming in, hit that like button. Make sure you're subscribing to this channel. Hit that notifications bell. And of course, the best way to support this work is to go on Patreon, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can find that in the link in the description. You can also find many other options to support this work. All right. Good evening. Good evening. Probably got 90 minutes in me today. Sleep is important, everyone. Sleep is important. So probably have 90 minutes in me tonight. It is good to be with all of you. So yeah, you know, uh, we have a packed agenda, you know, in terms of the stories. There's only a couple. I want to talk about Russia's warning to the West, recently given by Mr. Medvedev. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev in the uh, Russia Security Council, Russia's National Security Council. Of course, he's been PM before, uh, president before. And um, <clears throat> it's pretty stark. And I think it's a strong message. So I definitely want to go over that. Also, the United States, of course, is considering sanctions on China. We know that the United States has been very intensely escalating sanctions for all various reasons, all of them centering on economics, however. So they're all economic sanctions, and now they're mulling more. And I want to get into what that is all about. But of course, you know, the topic of the evening is just my commentary, my analysis on something that is called mega communism. There's a lot I could say about this. There's a lot I could say about this. Um, but you know, where do we even begin? So look, I've been in the communist movement for over a decade now. I've ran with parties. I've written, studied, applied Marxism. And I'll say this about MAGA communism to start off. If the idea is to try to go into, let's say, working class white communities, sim this is what the Black Panther Party actually suggested. If the idea is to go into working class white communities and promote socialism, a socialist agenda, a program, and attempting to do that by using language that you think working class white communities will be able to understand, I have no problem with this. I have no problem with that. This doesn't seem like that. From what I'm understanding is that this is more about uniting people who already support MAGA, Make America Great Again, the Trump-inspired slogan with Marxists who, it's unclear who these Marxists are. Are they communists in parties? Are they just Marxist-oriented thinkers, activists? Not so clear on that one. 
But when we're talking about unity, then we have to talk about unity against what? I've heard globalism, the deep state, but that's not in a program. So my first concern, question is what's the program, right? How do you do this? And is it something that can be done given the current political situation that we face on the ground? Are we aware of that political situation on the ground? There's so many things that we can get into and we're going to get into it. That's just one small point. But, you know, on this question, I did invite Jackson onto the program. You know, he did not accept. And uh, I felt that the name calling of me was just, it's just not going to get me into a debate if that's what uh, 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 was desired. So I was like, all right, we'll have a discussion. Let's put that stuff aside and let's have a discussion. It was declined. So I'm just going to comment on the, you know, I'm not going to get into what was said in the DM, but I will just get into the ideas because to me, this isn't about personalities. I could care less about chest thumping and debating and all of this stuff. I could care less about that. What I care about is whether this ideology, this uh, idea, this theory has any utility to the struggle because my number one approach in all of the work that I do from writing to activism, anything at all is, does this serve the people? And to me, I do not see it. I do not see this serving the people and there are so many reasons for this. So I want to talk about one thing that doesn't get any coverage. And I think it's because you have this very narrow, narrow, narrow understanding of what class struggle is in the United States. And I come from a tradition of class struggle in the United States being rooted in literal, real anti-racism, and understanding that class is both about our relationship to the means of production and how under specific conditions, oppression uh, comes in many, many forms. The ruling class, the bourgeoisie, they divide us in so many ways. And the United States is by far and away the most effective at it. The United States, because of the incredible repression and the incredible complexity and challenges that we face given the current social relations has been wildly successful in dismantling, dismembering, disorganizing, and rendering incredibly weak any kind of communist movement, any kind of attempt to build socialism. So we have to be very open about that. We have to understand that. We have to understand that there is a reason why the communist movement is so weak right now. And there are many reasons for that. But one of which is that we have a political moment where it feels like all of the ideas that are supposed to sound fresh really just sound like they're coming straight from the bowels of the duopoly. So you have on the one hand, and I criticize democratic socialism a lot. 
I criticize a lot of ultra left communism. You've heard me on this channel talk. I have real. I have a lot of experiences with like ISO forces, democratic socialists, quote unquote. You know, there there's a really narrow framework there that usually leads right back into the Democratic Party. There's a lot of essentially what I call inf infantilism, like no attention to how do you build real working class power? And then how do you ensure that ideologically your program is actually raising the level of consciousness of working people rather than maybe like how a lot of uh, uh, these trots, you know, so-called Trotskyists, fourth internationalists, talked a lot about that. They really send people right back into the embraces of the CIA and the State Department, intelligence services, Pentagon, etc. But then there's this now other trend that's emerged, where because there's been a collapse in the duopoly system, the Democratic Party has lost legitimacy, not crying about that. And the GOP has been carved into pieces in the so-called MAGA contingent that led by Donald Trump, mainly Donald Trump. But of course, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have some others who claim to be, you know, they, they run in elections. They're, uh, they're prominent in the GOP now. Uh, they have the base. There has been what I think to be a, a, an incredible deviation toward them, an attempt to understand them as some kind of revolutionary trend. When really what the trend is, is a sign of collapse politically, a sign of a political vacuum that if communists, if we're interested in moving working class consciousness forward, if we're interested in serving the people with our ideology, with our journalism, with our analysis, and of course, most importantly, with our feet, what we're doing in the movement, then we are not simply tailing the masses. Vladimir Lenin was very clear about this and what is to be done and in many other works. Tailism is a recipe for the destruction of the movement, the co-optation of the movement, and really the development of the most insidious forms of opportunism. Meaning that it creates leaders that end up in the warm embrace of the establishment, the bourgeoisie. It doesn't lead to concrete victories. And that's all I'm interested in. I don't, I don't care about the rightness, the ideological purity. There's all of this stuff said, oh, you want to just be ideologically pure? No, this is about how does our ideology serve the people? And to me, MAGA, any kind of MAGA branding doesn't do it. For one, it strictly tails an electoral phenomena. That's what it is. Don, that's, that was Donald Trump's campaign slogan. Yes, millions of people did sign on to it, but it's still not even a plurality of the working class. And no one can tell me differently about that. Secondly, even if it was a plurality, let's say, we're ignoring the fact that any successful working class movement anywhere is multinational, anywhere in the world, and it has to be in the United States. It has to be about focusing on the multinational character of the working class. Lenin talked about the national question, talked about internationalism. 
He talked about how you have to have attention that's to oppress people, to oppress nations. And that's why the Third International adopted the edit of Marx's famous quote at the end of the Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World Unite, and put workers and changed it to workers and oppressed people of the world unite. Because there was a recognition that you need to focus on the uh, the oppressed nations. You have to do that. And you have to focus on the multinational character of any proletarian struggle. And MAGA, I hate to break it to you, is an incredibly white phenomenon. And that's not to say that white workers should not be reached out to. But it is to say that if you're going to be white communists, then your goal and strategy should be to figure out how to, one, yes, appeal to their real economic concerns, political concerns, questions of power, questions of material issues, of course. But then, just as the young patriots did in the 1960s and 70s, you have to re-educate. You have to uh, combat the racism, the backwardness, all of these ideas that have held working class whites back. We can't not acknowledge that. To me, the Trump phenomenon is one, I think, part of the excrement of the duopoly system. And it had some, what I think were, uh, uh, I, I mean, I don't even judge it as positive or negative, some objective phenomena that we do have to pay attention to. We have to understand that a lot of anti-imperialism, a lot of the economic issues are, that should be socialist in character were seeded. Right? They were ceded to the neoliberal Democrats. That's 100% true. But at the same time, we can't just give those things to Donald Trump and make America great again. We have to have an independent political orientation. So for me, MAGA communism doesn't really do that. There's a lot of stuff I see online of like Donald Trump, this, as if that symbolism is going to help. In my opinion, it shows a level of detachment from the working class because the working class is very, 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 very diverse. And I even just think about the Rust Belt. The biggest cities in the Rust Belt are majority black or have a heavy black plurality or, it, or a heavy non-white plurality. And most black Americans... Of especially working class black Americans, but working class but black Americans across the board, they vote Democrat. Nothing about MAGA is attractive. Absolutely nothing because it's associated with the GOP. So that's not to say we say, okay, well, we have to appeal to Democratic Party sentiments. I'm saying we have to get away from the duopoly. We have to create a strategy. We have to create a program. We have to create organization that people will take seriously. That's my major point. And I don't think MAGA communism does that. I don't think it's trying to do that. Look, memes are memes. And, you know, 
It's not something I really engage in. That's not me. I will work with anybody who is willing to stand against wars, imperialism. But when we're talking about communism, when we're talking about uniting Marxists and MAGA, we're talking about a whole different thing. We're talking about there's more on the agenda. The deep state and globalism, to me, I mean, that's abstract language. You have to define that. You have to define what the state is. You have to be able to educate people about this. To me, all of this just feels, I mean, I mean, it feels disingenuous. It, it doesn't feel like a real attempt to reach out to working class people. If you want to talk about the state, the warfare state, the imperialist state, the real state, which is what I consider the deep state, great. Put that as part of the program. If you want to talk about global capitalism, the way that economics is global, capitalism is global, exploits the workers, exploits oppressed people all across the world, great. Connecting domestic issues to international ones, of course, we should be doing that. But there's no reason to have to tail an electoral phenomenon that really is, and this is what MAGA was as a message. It was empire nostalgia not oh donald trump was pro-war and blah blah look donald trump spoke for himself during his administration he said a lot of things and then he did a lot of things all right and a lot of the things he did were imperialists we just have to be honest about that his one of the benefits of having donald trump in office was that there were some things that the neoliberal democrats and even a lot of parts of his own party were so unhinged upon that it created what we call a black agenda reporter gridlock, meaning that some things just didn't happen, right? Which was a good thing. And uh, there were some things that Donald Trump did to cement his foreign policy legacy, which are positive, but every president does it. Donald Trump did it with the DPRK. Obama did it with Cuba. We can go on and on and on. Presidents do this, right? It's not something special to Donald Trump. I think we need to get away from the personality politics and look at the real politics. Look at the real situation in front of us. Donald Trump is no savior. MAGA is not the savior. MAGA, I don't even, I, MAGA does not, I, it doesn't identify with half of the population or a quarter of the population. It, it is an electoral slogan. It's one that's hotly debated, mainly electorally. And if we want to come up with a program that is centered on unity amongst the working class, then I think we should probably focus on the concrete material conditions facing people and then work on the ideological struggle while we're putting those forward. That's what my work here does. I talk about concrete imperialist ventures. I talk about concrete instances of white supremacy of exploitation of the working class. And then I talk about ideologically how to explain it. Because that's the thing that working class people don't get. They don't get that from the politicians. They get bamboozled by the politicians, by the corporate media. They get lied to. They get distorted ideology. To me, Make America Great Again is just another iteration of American exceptionalism. In American exceptionalism, I wrote in 2019, is the most formidable and dangerous ideological weapon of the ruling elite. 
by far and away. And to me, Donald Trump isn't even the most heinous iteration of that, despite the fact that there are a lot of heinous things about Donald Trump himself. Really, the most heinous iteration of that that is most dangerous for us is the inclusion, the diversity, the we're moving toward a more perfect union, look at the reform that's happening. That's mainly the Democratic Party, right? Selling wolf tickets. But at the same time, a lot is being ceded to the Democratic Party right now. And I just don't see that as helpful. I don't see it as helpful to seed this, you know, there's this whole like woke agenda and, you know, identity politics, this identity politics, that. We can't seed that to the right. I mean, to the, to the neoliberal Democrats who are the right, in my opinion. We can't seed that to them. We cannot seed that to them. Meaning that, one, issues of racism are class struggle issues. I'm sorry. You got to learn something if you don't understand that. You have to, I don't you have to be actually with the people. You have to, uh, I don't know where MAGA communist folks who believe in this, I don't know where, where they're from. I know where some kind of reside, but I don't think they understand the history of the United States. And the history of the United States says that the most revolutionary movement in the United States has come out of black America. It's come out of the oppressed nations. And it's come out of how the working class struggle has navigated that. Always. The most revolutionary tradition is there. And also, the working class as a whole always has to reckon with this. I'll just say there's one story. Personal story. I'm a shop steward at a social service agency. And, you know, this is during COVID. And, you know, my coworker, black woman, she's written up for a very, very, very questionable so-called offense, right? And the offense was she didn't call someone, the person could, supposedly could have gotten hurt. Uh, we're all social workers, right? So we're, we're working with older people and uh, supposedly she didn't do her due diligence to make sure someone was safe. She could have fallen, et cetera, et cetera. But she got written up for that, for a, a first-time offense, despite the fact that the union contract said the first time something happens, you have a conversation with them. But no, she was immediately written up with a warning. And so this coworker had forever, you know, she had been there longer than I had. She had forever suspected that she was treated differently because she was a black woman, that she was discriminated against, that uh, uh, her just her her being in the workplace was looked at differently because she didn't act like most of the middle class white women who were around, you know, it, it, who who occupied the workspace. And so she immediately wanted to go after the supervisor who wrote her up with this point. And we had to have a long, hard conversation about one, what's the strategy here? Can we win given our situation? But I had to acknowledge that racism was a real problem in the workplace and for black women like herself. I had to acknowledge that because black people every day, every single day in this country face uh, massive amounts of uh, super exploitation 
whether it's the fact that they make 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar on average to a white worker. That's just the reality. Whether it's that'll take 220 plus years for black families to get up to the median wealth of white families, right? Whether it's the fact that more than 40% of the mass incarceration regime, 2 million people, are black people. And that black people are twice as likely to be killed by police. Their life expectancy declines far faster, right? 2020 alone, I think it was four years. These are working class issues. This is the national question. We have to be attentive to that. Who are we recruiting? If your idea is to go to working class whites, I have no problem with that. No problem with that. But if your overall message for all communists is MAGA, I don't want to hear that. That's not sound strategy. Because look at what has happened. Nothing positive has... Tell me what positive has come from MAGA. MAGA is an outgrowth of societal capitalist collapse. I, that, that can be seen as a positive, but MAGA itself, to me, is not necessarily a positive. It's something we have to navigate. We do have to approach. I'm not saying, oh, cancel everyone who's a Trump supporter or any of that. No, I've never done that, never said that. I don't believe that. This is not about individual political persuasions. I believe, yes, if people are willing to listen, if we have common ground on certain issues, let's do it. Let's talk. Socialist, real socialist and communist movements are divided, right, into various areas of struggle. You have the mass struggle, right, hopefully conducted by mass organizations trying to build together a mass movement around concrete issues and needs and areas of this struggle so that people are in motion, right? And then you have the Communist Party or the party organ that is supposed to be the vanguard. It's supposed to be guiding that struggle. It's supposed to be out in front. It's supposed to be explaining to the masses when they are disappointed, when they are repressed, when they win, why they won, why they've been repressed, why they've been disappointed, right? That is the role and function of communists who are interested in building parties, structures, organizations. To, and I don't see MAGA communism doing that. Maybe in time. Look, I'm not unreasonable. Maybe in time. But I do think there will be a reckoning eventually. There has to be. Because anything that comes out of the excrements of the two-party duopoly will have contradictions so acute that they will not stand in the same way forever. They just won't. It's just not going to work out uh, the way you think it's going to work out, maybe in your head. So, you know, for me also, I want to comment on another phenomenon because to, to me, uh, MAGA communism, it's an idea that uh, not fleshed out. Uh, of course, there are problems with the bourgeois parties, uh, lack of attention to the national question, to racism, to all sorts of key class struggle issues, not identity politics, not the woke agenda, 
but the way people are living in the United States at this moment and the need for a real multinational working class movement. If you want to build a working class, white organization, white uh, mode of uh, winning people over to socialism, great. But you're going to also have to be in solidarity with those forces who are trying to build the overall socialist and communist movement. You can't just say that uh, any no one who agrees with you is, uh, uh, you know, if you're a communist, you know, you don't, you're not, uh, you don't agree with this. That that means you're a liberal or some nonsense like that. Absolutely nonsense. I mean, to me, it's amateurish. It's immature. That's not how socialism, how communism develops. We've got to, we got to come with stronger stuff. All right. You got to build some skin, some thicker skin. So, um, but there's another phenomenon here, and that is social conservatism. I hear this all the time online, right? Generally from the same forces, but a lot of different people. And a lot of it is a reaction to, again, liberals, the Democratic Party, how they have exploited identity politics, how they have co-opted a lot of issues, whether it's environmentalism, uh, uh, gender and sexuality and issues there, uh, race, et cetera, et cetera. We can go all, all, all along the line. In my book, again, on American exceptionalism in 2019, and in dozens and dozens of articles, I have written about the dangerous trend. I, I've been writing about this since I think before a lot of these forces, you know, hit puberty, right? I've been writing about this. And we have to understand that, yes, for example, the Obama era was the most disastrous era because it brought this politics of diversity, inclusion, uh, identity politics, quote unquote, to such a, a, a dangerous level of uh, propaganda, right? It, it was weaponizing it to reinforce American exceptionalism and to push forward people, and I still believe this, people like Hillary Clinton, who I believe was more dangerous and still is more dangerous than Donald Trump in, in a lot of ways. I mean, that's been my position for a long time, but it's to push forward people like that. It didn't necessarily work very well, as we see by the conversation I'm having now, by uh, the fact that politics in the United States has changed quite a bit, but it is still very much having a stranglehold over the Democratic Party base, meaning that, yes, identity politics is a huge problem in the sense of neoliberalism and imperialism in the way that the ruling class uses these issues to reproduce exploitation and oppression and to reproduce this and, and to make it more effective as we coined in Black Agenda Report, the great Glenn Ford, my mentor, coined, the, has made the Democratic Party the more effective evil. And I still believe that. However, you cannot see these issues to them by leaning to MAGA which is a reactionary trend, a reactionary response to it, we're seeding the struggle against racism. We're seeding the fact that, for example, right, there's a lot of just nasty stuff I see online within this camp talking about trans people. Man, that's some really lame 
stuff. The vast majority of people who identify as transgender, regardless of the direction, regardless of who, regardless of how it manifests, how how uh, people decide to go through this process, vast majority are working class. Vast majority are poor. I think it's something like one in five transgender identified adults will experience homelessness. Right? Nearly all of them experience job discrimination wage differentials, right? Wage inequality. These are class struggle issues. These are things that we have to confront because the ruling class is the one that's using, that's a, that is responding, that is exploiting people on this basis, right? And, and this is what capitalism does. This is what American capitalism has always done. It uses anything, any, any reason it can to increase the rate of exploitation. So, we can't cede that to billionaires, NGOs, foundations. We can't cede that struggle to them. We have to be in solidarity with working class trans people. We have to be in solidarity with poor trans people, many of them trans people of color. Many of them in prisons face the most heinous. I've, I've written about this. The most heinous forms of discrimination and uh, uh, violence from the state. So we have to be in solidarity with all people who are being exploited by this system, both as workers and for whatever other reason that the ruling class has decided in, to use as a reason to increase the rate of exploitation and repression and to divide us all. So communists pay attention to the particular and the specific. I mean, and the general, I should say. The particular and the general. So in general, you know, we should be developing a broad-based working class movement based on unity, on what we can fight together on right now. And to me, there's a lot of things that we could do that are very concrete. Healthcare, Medicare for all. Millions of young people right now are, are saying they're anti-capitalist and are leaning towards socialism and on all these issues medicare for all student debt cancellation uh police brutality they're on board right now why no attention to them are they just co-opted by the uh neoliberal establishment are they just dupes just because the duopoly has a stranglehold on politics you're going to cede them to the democrats if we're not going to cede voters uh, who voted for Donald Trump who may have the ability to be won over to socialism, why would we cede young working class people to the Democrats? Why would we cede uh, black workers to the Democrats? Why would we cede union members to the Democrats? To me, that sounds strange. Why is this partisan? Absolutely no reason for this to be partisan. Absolutely none. So, for me, right, these are class struggle issues. This class struggle is not simply about uh, playing with words, right? It's not about uh, figuring out the coolest ways to mix uh, MAGA, uh, maybe a popular online phenomenon, and communism becoming more of a popular phenomenon online and offline, which is a positive. So it's, it's not simply about that. It's about 
understanding the material reality, confronting the working class, confronting oppressed people, trying to do our best to have a broad-based understanding of all of the different ways, and then plugging in where we fit in. So for me, right, I've been involved in many different struggles. I've been involved in labor unions. I've been a shop steward multiple times. I've been involved in anti-war struggles. Uh, you know, I stood with, this, with Syrian people here in the United States who are fighting against Obama's attempt to destroy their country in 2013. We had the FBI on us. We had drone, uh, like, I don't even know what you call them, like dragonflies flying in the air, spying on us. We had agent provocateurs trying to say that we stabbed them during a demonstration, right? Because they wanted to disorganize the Syrian American Forum and all of their allies, most of whom were socialists and anti-imperialists. They wanted to disorganize us. And you know what? The Syrian American Forum, they waved the American flag. Did I say, don't wave the American flag? No, they were also waving the Syrian flag of Bashar al-Assad, the Ba'ath Party. They were waving that, and they had very solid, they were very solidly nationalist, they were very solidly anti-war, and I worked with them. We talked about it, but I didn't hold back. I didn't say, hey, America's great. It's a great place. No, I would talk about the problems that we face, not, not all the problems that they could understand, because a lot of them had newly emigrated, those who had lived for a while, still live um, in pretty tight enclaves, within their community, uh, but a lot of them also understood the injustices that were happening elsewhere, that were happening in the country. They weren't offended by it. So that is to say that we have to be honest. We can't be dishonest. And I think some of the fear here is that there is an awareness that most people who identify as MAGA are not interested broadly in the class struggle. That's not to say all. Certainly, I'm sure there's a good number of people who are swing voters or they, you know, the way they vote, what they support changes. Maybe there are more than a few, which I'm sure there are, who all have a lot of war fatigue, who are opposed to these endless wars, who, you know, are sick and tired of declining living standards. I'm sure those, ex those people exist in the camp of MAGA, right, under the GOP banner, the MAGA banner. Sure. And we should work with them when, you know, when and if they're willing, right? Not saying don't reach out to them. What I'm saying is that we can be much more honest about where we come from because we understand working class people not as just vessels and pawns of some kind of political game played by the bourgeoisie, but as the potential agents of the destruction of capitalism and imperialism. If we understand that, we have confidence, right? We have confidence that we can tailor our strategy, our message, our conversations to win people over, then that means we have the utmost faith in working class people to, to change. And you know what? We will probably be disappointed a lot and that's not because working class whites or, or working class people of all stripes. It's not because 
of, of, of a fault of their own. It's because this system has created a set of set social relations which are designed to thwart our efforts. So we have to remember things. There are certain things we have to remember. There are a lot, for example, of working class whites hired as prison guards. There are a lot of working class whites who have uh, uh, who have been agents of this oppression. There are a lot of working class, you know, there are a lot of working class black police officers now who are agents of repression, right? Philadelphia police forces by far majority black, and they tend to be the most violent, not because they're black, but because Philly is a black city and there is just an intense, the, the way the police are designed is that the repression is more fierce when it's targeted toward black people, especially majority black cities. So we have to understand these contradictions, right? It wasn't just ruling class folks who were voting with the Dixiecrats in the 1960s who became the modern day Republicans and also were watching lynch lynchings. It wasn't just, right? It wasn't just ruling class people doing that. It was also middle class, petty bourgeoisie. It was also working class people. These are contradictions we have to reckon with when they, are, they arise and they're relevant. But in no means does, it, does that indicate or conclude that my message is somehow don't talk to people. The point is that MAGA messaging is just not it. It's not it. It doesn't, it doesn't meet what I believe is the standard for people who are serious about the future of communism, right? Because communism is not like the politics you hold in your head. It's the end goal. So if you're serious about that, then you should be serious about moving things forward from where they are right now. And where they are right now is that trends like MAGA are inherently tied to the electoral duopoly, to the two-party duopoly, to in all of the uh, asinine characteristics of that state. And this includes, yes, it includes racism because the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are racist parties. They're capitalist parties. We have Black Agenda Report called the Republican Party the white man's party for a reason because that's its history in the last two and a half generations. Study Republican Party history. There was a mass exodus of racist Democrats from the Democratic Party during the black struggle for self-determination beginning in the early 60s. They were called Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats, Mass exodus in the internal Republican Party. Why? Because the Democratic Party was beginning to cede, right, to the demands of the black struggle. That was the reason. And they knew that certain policies like segregation, Jim Crow, violence, right, all of that, lynchings, that it wasn't going to necessarily fly, that desegregation was going to be federally enforced, and that wasn't going to be something that Democrats supported. So a lot of Democrats said, okay, we're going to go to the other party and we're going to take it over. And they successfully did. And it's been like that since. That's the history. So that has an impact. 
do not underestimate the impact of ideological hegemony that the ruling class imposes upon us on the, the task ahead. The task ahead is to challenge that ideological hegemony, which diverts us from the material class struggle. We have to debunk, counter American exceptionalism. We have to, no matter what its iteration is, we have to get away from the duopoly, which traps us in American exceptionalism's ideological graveyard, kills social movements, mostly within the Democratic Party, but uses the, but the Republican Party is used as the, as the hammer, right? It's used as the, the stick. Look, be scared of the Republican Party, run to the Democratic Party, right? Because the Republicans are going to hammer you. That's the relationship that the duopoly has to us. And that includes ideologically. So to me, any kind of use of MAGA makes no strategic sense. I mean, I guess if you want clicks, you want likes, you want views, okay. If that's your prerogative, fine. I get it. I get what kind of media space we're in. It's not something I'm gonna be down for. It's not something that I think a lot of socialists and communists are going to be down for. So who are the Marxists? Who are the communists? It's already a small number of people, which is a hard reality. A lot of them are probably not going to get down with this. I'm not. I don't think a lot are. So, you know, I'll spend another couple minutes on this. Um, Take a little break, though. Uh, keep liking the video. Keep hitting the subscription button. And if you're new to the channel, hit that notifications bell. Please do also support this work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong uh, or in any other way in the description of this video. I'll take the time to... Um, <laughs> I'm going to take the time to just make a few announcements. Uh, I guess we're in the middle, I guess, of the video. So tomorrow I have Ben Norton on. We're going to talk about a lot of things, Ukraine, multipolarity. We'll probably comment on this as well because I know he's been very opinionated. Um, but we're, I mean, we're focusing mostly on the imperialism issue. But um, <clears throat> Friday, I have a really great set of guests. I have Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad coming on to talk about their book, the withdrawal and to talk about uh, the fragility of U.S. imperial power. And so that's going to be incredible. Both of those are going to be early afternoon, 12 noon, 1230 noon Eastern time. Um, so that's what's coming up. It's great. So you really should be subscribing and make sure you catch that, um, you know, when it's posted. So, you know, I'll just make a, a, a brief comment to end this, okay? To end this uh, conversation about MAGA communism. So, we have a situation where, and I think this is a good thing, there is a lot of curiosity, a lot of energy behind figuring out 
these concepts of socialism and communism. That's amazing. Back when I was studying for the first time Marxism, when I was picking up the works of Lenin and Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, George Jackson, Huey Newton, when I was picking up the works of prominent socialists, communists, at that point, I didn't have much faith that the communist movement in the United States, that there would be this resurgence of interest in it. Because it felt like most of the interest in it was in this small kind of cohort of people who were already organizing, right? And who had been doing so for decades. I felt myself to be the youngest person oftentimes in spaces whenever talking about it. But now it seems like in the media, there's more interest in, in politics, especially since Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Sanders, uh, two, you know, Sanders 2.0, the squad. Now there's more interest in the question of socialism. And of course, the contradictions of the Democratic Party have created, thankfully, space to say, well, that's not socialism. <laughs> and uh, the New Deal isn't socialism. And uh, uh, communism is something a lot deeper, right? It's a lot deeper. But I think that there is a lot of room to grow. And the growth that is necessary, right, is going to come from the actual interaction, the on-the-ground interaction with the masses of people in the, in the struggle on the ground. It's not going to come from what I know versus what he knows versus what they know. You know, it's not going to come from that. Uh, these questions are solved in the streets. They're solved in the workplace. They're solved as people work through them. And then they rely on people like us to then provide guidance, right? That's all we should be doing as analysts of socialism and communism. Here is the ideology. Here is the explanation, right? That's what we should be doing. So for me, MAGA communism doesn't provide that. It doesn't. Because make America great again, no matter how, you can't spin it. You can't slice it. It, it doesn't lead to an, a real explanation of what's what's going on. Most people are feeling like, and the reason why Make America Great Again even came to be is because things are not great, never been great, but are worse than they've been for most people. And so Trump attempted to exploit that and say, well, I'm going to make it great again. And here's how. I'm going to do economic populism, but not actually do it. I'm going to uh, cur curtail some parts of the war machine, but mostly not actually do it. I'll, I'll work a few tinker. I'll do a little thing here and there. But for the most part, you know, I'll, I'll wage war for the establishment because that's what presidents do. Um, so that is, you know, I think the principal contradiction here about MAGA. And so that's how most people understand that it's a, it's a part of the agenda of what transpired over the last 
and what is transpiring over the last, what, six years now? Seven, I guess, 2015. And it doesn't have a program that is workable because it's full of hypocrisies, contradictions, and it's based on this ideological bedrock of nostalgia for something that never really existed. So there's no real need for it when we're engaged with the masses in both on the ground struggle or whatever it is, whether it's in the workplaces, in the prisons, whether it's, you know, wherever it is, it's not really necessary. And then ideologically, it doesn't move people forward. And we can cite so many examples as when real revolutionaries attempted to harness, right, maybe some of the nationalistic uh, uh, American sentiments of, of the people of the United States, right? We can look at what Ho Chi Minh did during the Declaration of Independent Vietnam. We can look at the Black Panther Party, what they did when they announced their 10-point program. However, I haven't seen that attempted by anybody in this camp, or if we want to call it a camp, or I haven't seen that really attempted. I haven't seen what are the agenda points, what are the action points. And I'm open to, for those who want to organize on a certain basis, to seeing that work out. But it's not a new thing. Organizations have been trying to do this forever. Even the Communist Party has many, I mean, I would argue the Communist Party almost always in, in the United States has some level of this. There's organizations all over the place who call themselves socialists and communists who try to do this. Activists, you know, say America has these values and so we're trying to live by them. To me, that's nothing new and I haven't seen it really bear fruit in the movement. All of my experiences with people, I said that this is not really a conversation starter for most people. When people are struggling, they're thinking about what they're struggling over. They're not thinking about how they think about the country. You know, how they what ideology has been kind of impressed upon them by the ruling elite. It may come up as we move forward in concrete activity. And then that's when we present the contradiction right? That's when we present it. And we try to move people forward into a new way of thinking. And so, you know, that's really my comments on this. You know, to me, uh, I think that it's a positive that there's more interest in communism and socialism now. I'm really happy about that. I think, you know, I think that's a, a, a really good thing. But we have to be precise. If we are truly communists, uh, Vladimir Lenin called it like, if you're truly a professional revolutionary, if you're a professional revolutionary, if you consider yourself, this is your life, this is your lifeblood, this is what you do, this is your role in service of the people, no matter how you do it, if you consider yourself a professional revolutionary, then you have to be attuned to everything and be honest. Tell no lies. Amilco Cabral. Tell no lies. Claim no easy victories. You have to be honest about the whole character 
of this system. You have to be. And it doesn't mean you have to know everything, but it means you have to be open to talking about it and not coming after people as wokists and liberals just because they understand issues of racism, of gender, oppression as key to the class struggle. You know, if you have a different strategy, pursue your strategy. Take the disagreement. It's okay. People are going to disagree. And, you know, the, we will see how it bears fruit and whether it is successful or not. And then we can all revise what we think we know when that time comes. But for now, it's an idea. It's floating out there. And to me, from what I know, from my experiences, from my study, from my work, which includes decade-plus analysts, journalists, and also having many years on the ground. It's just not satisfactory. It's not convincing. And I think it actually creates more sectarianism than it does anything else. Like, we don't need more We don't need any more, oh, screw the left, screw the communists, screw the current socialists, screw all that. That's more sectarianism. If you think you're the vanguard, you got to act like a vanguard. You got to organize people. You got to convince people. Not just, oh, we're abandoning the entire left for the right. What? <laughs> to me, that's just preposterous. Why would you be talking on those terms? Like, why aren't we talking about workers, oppressed people, convincing them, persuading them, demonstrating to them what the truth of the matter is that we all need to learn. We all need to understand better. We all need to test, as Mao said, our theory into practice and our practice into theory. We all need to continue to nurture that dialectic. We can't just write people off. And it's hilarious that, you know, <laughs> there's been... Um, so much about this, right? Uh, about personalities. And I'm like, nothing here is new to me. None of this is new. None of this. None of it is new. You may think it's new to you. Maybe, maybe this is new. Maybe this is a new experience for you to engage in politics with the word communism. But you got to also learn from your elders. Like I learned from people like Glenn Ford. I learned from black revolutionaries. I learned from communists who have been doing this for decades. Learn from world, world revolutionaries, right? Revolutionaries across the world, communists across the world. Social conservatism, not really of interest. If there, there's, look, the United States is built on Judeo-Christianism and really just heinous capitalist values, the most conservative, quote-unquote, capitalist values. Does that mean I embrace them just because some people may? No. I've learned that societies that were once some of the most socially conservative, like Cuba, for example, can change 
quite profoundly. And that's because there's attention to all of the contradictions of the system. And we don't have to tail the right wing or whatever, the rightist side of it to get things done. You know, we also don't have to go around calling people fascists and right wingers and all of that. I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I don't agree with that behavior. I understand where people get angry about that. I don't, you know, I don't agree with it, but, uh, you know, fascism, the U S is a fascist in my opinion is here now. Fascism is here now in a particular form in its kind of embryonic form in the United States' context. And we have to be very careful about politics. Politics is not a game. It's not entertainment. If politics is entertainment to you, then you're in the wrong, you know, you're just in the, you're in the wrong place. Because yes, politics, yes, you should be entertained. I'm not saying nobody should have fun. Of course, we should have fun. We should try to make things appealing. Yes. But the act of political struggle itself is not entertainment. It's very serious. Communism is very serious. Millions upon millions of people have died here and abroad fighting for this. We have to take it seriously. We have to understand that. We have to understand that uh, indigenous people, black people, the multinational working class has to be taken into account in anything we do even if our strategy is to organize white workers, working class whites, whatever we want to call them. If that's our strategy, if that's your strategy, it's not my strategy. I don't consider myself a working class white person. I grew up working class. Viet, not, that's not me. But I've been in solidarity with working class white workers. I've held working class white mothers when their children overdosed on heroin as we were negotiating for a contract, uh, as the agency that we were working for was claiming that they didn't have any money because they were about to close. And we learned that they did close. It was a brutal experience. But I didn't hold anything back from her. I didn't say racism is not a problem to her. I didn't say I'm going to ignore all these issues to her or to any, anyone else. I raise it when it need when it's needed to be raised, especially in the context of struggle, especially when it gets in the way. And oh boy, does issues like racism uh, get in the way? It gets in the way. So it gets in the way so many areas, whether it's class solidarity in the workplace, whether it's the fact that uh, employers will literally divide workers where they are in the workplace in a particular sector so that you have gradations of exploitation and you got to deal with resentments, right? It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important that we take all this into account. If your objective, and I don't know if this is the objective, if your objective is to develop socialism and to have some strategy to work in class whites, if that's the objective, then please, my only request, <laughs> my only suggestion is to take into consideration the broader reality, the broader reality, because 
The United States owes an immense debt. The U.S. capitalist and imperialist owes an immense debt to its oppressed nations, indigenous people, black people, et cetera, et cetera, an immense debt, and then to the rest of the world. So we have a lot of work to do. And to me, MAGA communism just doesn't feel like the work that we need to be doing. It feels like a distraction. It feels like sectarianism. It feels like, I don't know, a project, like a, like, like, a, like a project that is not politically serious. So that's what it feels like to me. And I actually want to play. Actually, I see Midwestern Marks in the chat. Um, I see a lot of people in the chat. You know, Eddie, Eddie over at Mid Midwestern Marks, I'm going to play his tweet, actually, because um, I, ooh, I didn't... Um, I'll try to mute my mic. Yes, I'll mute my mic <laughs> while it's going on. Now tell me if you can still hear because I'm not wearing headphones right now. And I know that can sometimes be a problem because he actually had a great breakdown in one minute of something I've been talking about for an hour now. So <laughs> let me pull up his video on Twitter. Here we go. Oh, oh there were some responses. Okay, well... <laughs> I don't know if I'll play all of them. Let me play your initial. Is there an initial one? Oh, wow. There's a lot. Here we go. Um, I won't play the. I know that there's been a lot of uh, backlash. There's a lot of backlash to this. And look, yes, we should be getting to polemics. I got into a, 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 a I guess what you call a polemic with Midwestern Marks, and I found it to be great. You know, I had all of this, you know, uh, fire to write about people. Uh, patriotic socialism social you know it's been called many things let's just say patriotic socialism and so i made my points and i said here's what i think and then they had someone respond and while i don't agree with everything that they said i thought it was useful because it was literally us bringing forth our ideas and people get to make a determination with generally what i think is a a broad-based agreement on a lot of things and one issue I have with MAGA communism is that I don't, I don't see the, I don't see the substance, right? I don't see, like, if you're telling me to be broadly based against the deep state and globalism, I can say, yes, I'm against global capitalism. Won't use globalism because I find it unuseful. Um, for me, whatever, if you want to use it and you understand it as capital, not some different strain of capital, as I've heard, it's different strain. I don't know what the strain is. Uh, the, 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 the monopoly capitalist class. Yes, it's more concentrated, but I don't know what the strain is. If we want to say that in the intelligence services and the real state, you know, the secret state, the repressive apparatus in totality, the military state. Yeah, of course. But that's not what's being said. It's just words, right? It's just very vague words. So I'm going to play, um, this i think i have it up now yeah here we go so i'm gonna mute my mic when i put up please let me know if you can hear it uh la, 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 la. let me see so i'll just i'll close with this i think there's a good way to close um uh ugh, i hate the uh sizing here can i reduce i'll reduce my size of the window okay um let me put the, uh, 
audio on. Let me mute my mic. Let me know if you can hear it still, okay? Hashtag MAGA communism has been spreading on Twitter. I think Jackson Hinkle did this. And most of you know that I think tons of working class Trump supporters can be brought over to communism and I try and do it all the time. But I have a couple problems with the slogan. One, I don't think we need to make alliances with bourgeois politicians. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump, unless they're actually fighting to end the wars, which Trump really didn't in his four years as president, then I don't really see anything we can ally with them over. Really, we should just be talking to working people and trying to get them to become socialists. Also, I have a problem with the saying, make America great again. Um, when has America been great? I'm pretty sure as socialists, our opinion is that America will be great when America's a socialist republic. Because until now, our governments have been dictatorships of the owning minority versus the working majority. And America will only be great when we have a government that works for the majority. That's Marxism, y'all. If America used to be great, John Hampton, Paul Robeson, Fred Hampton, and our heroes wouldn't have had to fight so hard. Hashtag MAGA communism has been spreading on Twitter. I think Jackson Hinkle. All right. All right. So, you know, <laughs> I should have made this one minute because <laughs> I feel like that is uh, a great way to um, debunk it. I'm kind of curious now. Uh, 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 I'm kind of curious about this um, debunk, you know, this responses, actually. <laughs> if you don't mind, Midwestern Marks, I see you all in the chat. I'm curious about it. So let me let me see what you all had to say. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to mute my mic right now so we can hear. I posted these tweets this morning before going to work. One about how America will only be great once it becomes a socialist republic. And one about my opinion on hashtag MAGA communism. So I want to go over some of the most interesting responses. So this is one in response to the tweet about America never being great. It says, make America great again was never about the slogan, but about the working class people feeling like they've been robbed by their government, had their jobs outsourced, which I know this is exactly what I said in my MAGA communism video, said that we should appeal to working class Trump support without allying ourselves with political demagogues like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene because they don't actually have the interests of the working class in mind. And then this person says, I know that your tweet is not about the slogans itself, but a reaction to us, the mega communists. You would rather serve your liberal base than actually give an F about what the working class wants. And interrupting us with, um, actually... This is just ridiculous, dude. You're being a baby. I have nothing against you MAGA communists. I've met with Jackson Hinkle plenty of times and promoted him. I've given my own money via Super Chats to Infrared because they don't always have the same strategy as me or exact same opinions as me, but they're bringing a lot of working class people to socialism, which I think is good. And that is literally why I critiqued you guys because I just want to make sure y'all keep fighting for communism and not get sidetracked supporting some demagogue like Trump who makes populist promises to the working class but never fulfills them. Just last week, I was defending the MAGA communists against the angry liberal Radlib mob because they were mad at Jackson Hinkle for going on Tucker Carlson. And do you know what they did? They used personal attacks and smears because they had no argument in good faith. How can you not see that that's exactly what you're doing? All right, moving on. This one says, you say America has never been great, but then you name three great Americans. America's more than just a government. Which, yes, true. That's actually my main point here. And we did a whole journal about this. Recapturing the American revolutionary heroes who have fought against the dictatorships of the owning classes. But the American economic system, and therefore the state, has always been a dictatorship of the owning classes 
classes, which is what we mean when we say America has never been great. This is Stalin in Foundations of Leninism talking about the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat. He says, nevertheless, there is an essential difference between the two, which is that all class states have existed herefore to have of Leninism talking about the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat. He says, nevertheless, there is an essential difference between the two, which is that all class states have existed herefore to have been dictatorships of an exploiting minority over the exploited majority, whereas the dictatorship of the proletariat is the dictatorship of the exploited majority over an exploiting minority. So even though America has had a lot of great revolutionary heroes who fought on behalf of the exploited majority, the country in its totality has still been a dictatorship of the exploiting minority, whether under slavery or capitalism. And the country as a whole will only be great once that great majority takes power over the ruling minority. All right, that's all for part one. In part two, I'll respond to the guy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me just uh, close this out. Yes. All right. I mean, very good points. Yeah, the personal tax are ridiculous. Like, uh, <laughs> just such a, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just immature to me, you know, personal attacks. I, I've been told that I uh, 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 called uh, Jackson anti-Semitic. There's no tweet. There's no video on the record of that. Don't know where that came from you know, uh, uh, said Soya's racist. I, I do believe that's a personal attack. I'm Asian. I do believe that since soy is a food is like literally a food stripped from the people, the oppressed nations to then be, uh, co-opted by, uh, hipsters and then have that used against revolutionaries and socialists. I don't only see that as racist, but I see that as sectarian and immature. So, you know, get your mind right, is my opinion. But, you know, I'm not here about personalities. This is not about personalities to me. Everything that Midwestern Mark said, you know, that's, that's just rooted in the reality of the situation. And we can talk to working class people about this, and we don't have to. I don't know where this comes off at. I don't know how this comes off. We don't have to appeal to sentiments that were literally produced by a state that is interested only in reproducing the exploitation and oppression, the confusion, the white supremacy, all of this stuff. Uh, and yes, in Midwestern Mars, yes, soy means wimpy. I get it. But, you know, people don't understand that just because they think words mean something. You know, I, I, I know this culture. I'm sure you do know, Eddie, the, this like kind of like bro culture. It ain't for me. I'm not the one. Don't come at me with that, you know, because I'm not the one. No, I'm an adult. <laughs> I'm an adult. I'm not in this for your weird, like, pettiness, right? Like, that's not it. This is a battle of ideas, and we're giving them. We're talking about it. We are talking about ideas. We're having the battle, and that's it. And that, that's my, uh, that's my, uh, you know, that's my opinion. So I could go on and on and on about this. It's already getting late, but I, I can keep going on and on and on about this because, you know, it really does, it, you know, to be honest, it, it just, it makes me angry. I'm sure Ben Norton, I know Ben Norton's really angry and Ben Norton, you know, 
he's done amazing work and he's a comrade. And, you know, uh, uh, sometimes on Twitter, things get really personal. But at the same time, when I'm asked to a debate and called a P word, you know, all this kid stuff. Oh, yeah, you're making it personal. But I don't touch that because that's not what I do. I'm a professional revolutionary. We all got to have that same mentality. We do the work not for ourselves, but we do it for the people. We do it for the workers. We do it for the oppressed. We don't do it for algorithms, for clicks, for all of that. We do it for that. You know, we have to navigate this. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to spread and to be bigger and all of that. No, we, we have to navigate that contradiction within this media corporate ecosystem. But calling names, please. Like that's, that's second grade childish stuff. Um, and so, you know, to me, you know, I'm going to come out with an article about this, about the ideology, about what I think about it. And to me, it's against history. You know, it's going to be part of the title. It's against history. Uh, my big issue also is with social conservatism. I'm not saying everyone has to be, and I've said this earlier in the stream, everyone has to be like, where everyone is, right? I, I have this conversation all the time. Like I stand with transgender workers, oppressed people, but not everyone is going to understand the pronouns, the certain ways of looking at this. This is a very new phenomena and not everyone's going to understand it. And of course you have the corporate neoliberals trying to weaponize it against all of us, including working class trans people, confusing us with, these ideological games and with propaganda. So not everyone's going to understand it. And of course we can't expect all working class people, press people to understand it, but we can bring it to the agenda when it is necessary. Meaning when it comes up in the struggle together, when we're trying to win over people, and we don't understand what it means to be a transgender person, we don't understand what it means to be part of an oppressed nationality, then we have to learn and we have to win people over to our side and then be sure, just like I said before, the general and the particular. The general is we're all trying to forge a united class struggle against the bourgeoisie. The particular is if we don't understand our comrades, if we don't understand the people we are trying to lead as a vanguard force, if that's what we're interested in building, then they're not going to stick with us. They're, we're going to cede them to the neoliberals, to the capitalists, to the imperialists, to the Obama, Clinton, etc. machinery. We will cede them and they will be foot soldiers against us. And that is what is happening. And it's sickening to me that anyone could argue that we just need to focus on MAGA. Give me a break. We have most of the country right now ready for massive changes and to, to go after a niche concept, make America great again. It's a niche concept for the bourgeoisie. They're trying to universalize on all of us. And that's what American exceptionalism is. That's what it is. It doesn't matter what iteration. Make America great again. America was already great. Give me a break. I haven't talked to one working class person about that ever. It's never had to come up. 
Now, I've grown up in working class urban areas. And so sure, they lean Democrat. So I have a lot of very cringe conversations about the Democrats. That's where I am, where I have to meet people. I have to talk to them about the contradictions of the Democratic Party. They're not interested in the GOP and then Donald Trump. They think he's the worst thing ever. And that actually becomes the impediment. And I have to talk to them about the Democratic Party literally destroying our lives. I'm, you know, I have to talk about the Cuomo's. I have to talk about Obama's. I talk about the Clintons. I have to talk about this all of the time with my fellow workers out here because that's where the capture is. So does that not matter? I think that's a really big part of this struggle to me. And I'll just end on this note because I want to get to the other stories. We have to understand that if the Democratic Party is the biggest impediment to the working class movement, which I believe it is, then we have to confront not just the Democratic Party as an elite institution, but we have to win over the people who have been captured by it. Because guess what? The Democratic Party's base has historically been the most militant in the United States. Not the only. There's been a lot of working class white and honestly just working class activity in areas maybe not considered Democrat. But all of this is contingent upon history and time and place and all of that. So in no means am I saying it's only Democratic, the Democratic base that's Democratic Party base is revolutionary. But in this moment, especially for the last 30 years, the function of the Democratic Party is to capture the most progressive leftist and working class elements into its corporate jaws and throw the, uh, the skeleton into the graveyard after the movements are chewed up and spit out. I'm not seeding that and never will, and that will be continue to be my focus. So I, don't, I just don't see where MAGA is going to take us in terms of confronting that fact, right? And sure, it may be different in other parts of the country. And please do revise the strategy based on that. Sure. But if we're going to win people over, we have to understand that there's a large part of the people who are in that predicament. So I'm going to end uh, you know, this segment on this topic there's a <laughs> there's a lot that could be said about it but it's probably where i'm going to leave it i mean i'll ben norton on tomorrow 12 noon eastern time so be sure to um be sure to join in um and and join the conversation we're gonna talk about ukraine he's been doing a lot of good work on ukraine we're going to be talking about uh, multipolarity because that's a lot of his focus at Multipolarista. And then we're going to talk about this. And I'll get his reaction and we'll have another, a little bit briefer conversation probably about it, but a conversation nonetheless. So I want to get to um, a few other stories, but before I do, I just want to say thanks to the super chats. Thanks 31st century socialism for the super sticker. Oh man, the, the chat is kind of uh, a blaze. Um, uh, so 31st century socialism, thank you for the support. Um, 
Terry says, you know what countries are socially conservative? Cuba, modern day. No, it's not. Nicaragua and Venezuela. I don't know as much about their context. I don't agree. I don't believe that's true. I, I, I know that Nicaragua has made immense progress on the women question, Afro, uh, Afro-Nicaraguans. Uh, I'll ask Ben about that tomorrow because he lives there. Um, in Venezuela, he's visited. My wife has visited Venezuela before. I never have. Uh, but I understand that the Bolivarian movement is quite progressive. And yes, look, and I'll say to this question, I'll say to this question, I'm not writing anybody off. I'm saying that social conservatism is a struggle. It is very much a struggle. For example, let's take Cuba. Modern day Cuba is not socially conservative. I posted on my Twitter. Let me show you all. And this was a point that I wanted to make because... I have seen a lot of things online about, oh, communist countries, socialist countries, they're all about social conservatism. And majority of Cuba, yeah, is Catholic or you know Christian, and there are definitely certain areas where that is true. And that's true for all socialist countries. It's part of the history and the context. Doesn't mean it's not a struggle, right? Doesn't mean that there aren't backwards ideas that these countries are constantly fighting against. Still to this day in China, there's incredible amounts of struggle around the women's question. They have a huge women's federation and they're constantly fighting about the role. They're constantly struggling over the role of women in society, how to elevate it and how to get over the feudal and the uh, uh, semi-capitalist, semi-colonial backwards ideology that was embedded in the century humiliation in China. It's a huge debate. It's a huge struggle, huge, still to this day. You know, socialist countries have struggles. So I want to show you um, the video because I was in Cuba in 2017. I was really lucky uh, uh, to be able to attend this because to me it was an incredible display, an incredible display of what it means to make progress on these issues and do it because you have socialism. So I'm going to show the video here and then i'm going to mute myself when i turn the volume on so this is back this is five years ago now oh i miss it i want to go back so here's my tweet i really hate the uh ratio let me let me make it smaller yeah that didn't even help um okay there we go so let me just uh play this for you so you can read that caption you know thousands of people i mean when i say thousands i can't i, I don't like to do the whole Counting, I know there are thousands. It could have been more than ten thousand. It could have been. I don't. I don't do that. A lot of communists have a habit of this. There's fifty thousand in the street. You don't even know. I'm not going to do that. There was a lot of people. So I'm going to show you the video though of the. So this was a rally held by Senesex, the Center for the Cuban Center for Sex Education. This is a state organ. This is not some woke institution. This is not some. Uh, a uh, 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 counter-revolutionary force. This isn't some NED-funded force. This is part of the state, the Cuban state, which is ruled by the Communist Party of Cuba. So it is. it was founded by Mariela Castro, okay, who is the daughter of Fidel Castro. All right. So <clears throat> here we go. Sorry, I got to mute my mic. So... Thank <laughs> you. 
So not the best video because uh, <laughs> internet in Cuba is not great. But I wanted to show that because in response to this question, because or comments, because Cuba in that rally, that NSX rally, it was all about transgender liberation and all the progress that has been made over the last decade, especially. Uh, but it was also celebrating the progress for LGBTQ plus folks, how much progress has been made uh, uh, in the revolution, especially since the 1980s, when because of AIDS, HIV AIDS, because of a lot of different things that are happening in the world, Cuba saw that it was necessary to make reforms to the system and to pay much closer attention to this issue. And they did. And that was a huge celebration. No police on the streets, no barricades. There were people dancing freely. It was incredible, something I've never seen before. So, you know, that, you know, uh, so I have a problem with the social conservatism uh, generalization. I think it's a, I think it's a dialectic and I think that it's a struggle and it's part of the class struggle. So thank you. Uh, well, I already got that uh, uh, from 31st Century Socialism. Uh, thank you, John Kemper. <laughs> thank you so much john uh i hope she i hope big teal gave you that um so yeah we're gonna have ben norton on tomorrow we're gonna have on um we're also going to have on um up oh, i have midwestern marks here venezuela has tons of working women on the ground struggling for rice i think we should show solidarity with them, not praise conservatism there, said Midwestern Marx. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think that Venezuela, I think, comes from a, a complicated situation. You know, uh, its its socialist movement has a lot of, of course, you have the sanctions, you have imperialism, uh, breathing down its neck, trying to starve them, trying to starve the people. And then you also have just a long history from the neoliberalism to the colonialism not having been reckoned with right the the open veins of latin america have been have been bleeding all over venezuela for so long because of colonialism and the uh, uh the social norms that are embedded in that process and so it may not be as advanced as cuba in some of these questions but i agree definitely when it comes to working class women i mean the leadership especially Afro-Venezuelans too, all the progress with Afro-Venezuelans and women that have made because of the Bolivarian Revolution is incredible and should be praised, whether it's for having parity at the workplace, being involved in the Bolivarian circles and the government, right? Uh, be, having rights for women and for Afro-Venezuelans enshrined in the constitution, that's all important progress, all important progress all important progress um so i don't i don't know what this is why not include status who katie halper and vanguard on your talks and debates more solidarity thank you for the super chat i mean 
you know, I don't know if you mean I should work with them more. I've I've been on Katie's show. Uh, I do hope to have Katie on my show. Um, I really do like Katie. I don't know status quo as much. The Vanguard, I, I was going to be on their show, never happened again. I'm not sure where that collaboration lies. I'm not unopen to it, but it's a lot of busyness. And I have a particular focus. There's a lot going on. So, yeah, I mean, that's all I can say on that. I have nothing against any of those folks, except that, you know, we have this, I have disagreements. Um, could you please interview EJ from non-compete? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something I could definitely do in the future. Uh, uh, you know, him and Luna do some good work. So yeah, um, I, you know, him both or just EJ. Yeah. Something I can consider. There's a lot on the plate right now for the coming weeks into October. Um, so yeah, that's it for this commentary. I want to thank the super chats. I don't know if I'm going to get to all of these stories. So, because I want to get off very soon uh, by 11 p.m. So, let me begin with the Russia story, okay? So, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, all right, uh, he has made a stern warning to the West. And we were, we're going to be talking about Ukraine a lot tomorrow. But Dmitry Medvedev on his telegram made a stern warning as the deputy chair at the National Security Council there in Russia. And here is what he had to say. I'm just going to pull up the article really quick. Uh, RT characterized as apocalyptic warning to the West. Um, he used a book of Revelation quote to comment on the quote unquote Kiev security treaty demands, which is in the article. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely heinous. So on Tuesday, uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, commented on uh, the security guarantees proposal that Kiev made, uh, which was really a prologue to a third world war, he said, calling it a historical appeal to Western countries engaged in a proxy war. He said if the West continues its quote unquote unrestrained pumping of the Kiev regime with the most dangerous type of weapons, Russia's military campaign will move to the next level where visible boundaries and potential predictability of actions by the parties of the conflict will be erased and the conflict will take a life of its own, as wars always do, he argued. And then the Western nations will not be able to sit in their clean homes, laughing at how they carefully weaken Russia by proxy. Everything will be on fire for them. Their people will harvest their grief in full. The land will be on fire and the concrete will melt, Medvedev wrote, before citing a Bible verse in Revelations 9.18. Yet still the narrow-minded politicians and their stupid think tanks thoughtfully twirling a glass of wine on their hands talk about how they can deal with us without entering into a direct war. Dull idiots without classical education, he said. So before I get a comment on that, I just want to tell you what these the security treaty was. It was basically the draft said that the U.S. and its allies would guarantee Ukraine's pre-2014 borders with weapons and ammunition ammunition, financial assistance, and training, as well as committing to maintain sanctions against Russia for as long as Kiev wants and handing over any confiscated Russian property to Ukraine. So what does that sound like? <laughs> that sounds like an imperialist project. It sounds like Ukraine is literally calling for an imperialist project. But Medvedev <laughs> absolutely obliterated the West here. This is just 
this is just to me it's hilarious because he was a bible verse i'm mean, talking about social conservatism here but you know we could argue that there's a lot of uh i don't know about the bible itself i'm not a religious partisan but uh you know with jesus and the struggle we could say that there was an anti-oppression you know uh, a struggle against uh, uh, uh power and, and whatnot there but let's just talk about how he used this verse to basically say you know f around and find out right like you want to do this you will be at war with us and that's just quite obvious right when it comes to just the terms of that basically saying uh give us all of the give us all of the land that we want pre-2014 because we said so Ma mainly give us the donbass the west will basically be usurping the donbass from not russia but from the people of the donbass who want to be independent from the donetsk republic lugansk republic from the forces in the donbass who want to be independent who want sovereignty because the ukrainian regime has been conducting an absolute uh, terror and an ethnic cleansing of east ukraine for more than eight years now so that's what's at stake here and it also means confiscating russian property and uh, basically using the weapons of war not just to give to the ukraine's military but to use the west as basically an usurper which you could argue is always the the goal here but medvedev said no you do that the all bets are off this special military operation will be a war you will be in a global war a world war three scenario and you will not enjoy it you will burn i mean this is the stakes of it right russia is a nuclear power russia has a strong military and it's willing to defend sovereignty and it's willing to defend the sovereignty of the Donetsk, the Lugansk and the Donbass region, right? So it's going to do that. And so any direct attempts to thwart this effort, to interfere, not just with sanctions, not just with throwing weapons, but with outright force is going to be met with force. And Russia would have every right to do that. That's international law. If there's going to be a foreign aggressor coming in and trying to usurp land, not just from Russia, but from Ukraine, from Eastern Ukraine, that's a war and all bets are off. So, I mean, to me, this just shows how suicidal all of this is because the US and the EU, they can't handle what would happen afterward. They can barely handle what's happening now, a proxy war, which they've waged it against a country that is not, one, going to bow down, but is not going to uh, not just bow down, but is not going to uh, produce the same results for them. Russia is not a weak country. It's not a small country. It's not a country that you can just uh, you know, turn into a neo-colony and try to erase any memory of that, try to uh, block it out. No, by raging a proxy war with Russia, you're putting the entire European continent at peril. Its economy is, a, is, is going up in smoke because of it.
in the United States' economy arguably has been in smoking for so long now, but also is facing dire consequences and is relying upon turning Europe into a scrap heap to survive a little longer. But remember this, folks. If Europe goes into a recession, the U.S. is going into a recession. That is, I mean, in my opinion, the U.S. is in a recession right now. So is Europe. But whenever it's official or whatever, if Europe, where, where Europe goes, the U.S. is going to go. Because economic crises are crises of overproduction, underconsumption. We're in the thick of that now. And then you have what investors do under those circumstances is they say, all right, guys, close and shop. We're closing shop. We're getting bailed out. And that's the deal. We're going to get bailed out. We're closing up shop. Your jobs, your jobs, your jobs, done. And then we're going to go to the government and get some money. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen here too. It's it, Arguably, it's happening right now. It is happening right now. So this is a stern warning from Medvedev. It's one that everyone should take seriously. This isn't to breed fear, but it's a serious, serious warning. It's a serious warning. They're not playing. Russia is not playing anymore. Neither Russia and China have the uh, luxury of playing games. They never were, but this isn't some kind of, well, we can just see what's going to happen. We can try diplomacy. No, the United States, its junior imperialist partners have no interest in it. So this proxy war only has one logical conclusion from the perspective of the imperialists, which is win by proxy war, not going to happen, or win by direct war, not going to happen, but watch watch the flames erupt, right? That's the trajectory of imperialism right now. Russia is saying, <laughs> well, they were saying back in April, we're ready for peace. We're ready to end this. We're ready to come to a negotiated settlement. They were saying this back in December before this even started. But it's not being listened to. It's not being heeded. And as Vladimir Putin has made so many statements, even in just the last couple weeks, a month alone, what are you to do? They're not going to, Russia's not going to imperil its economic interests, its geopolitical interests of any kind, military, political, anything for the sake of the United States and the West. It's not going to do, or Ukraine at this point, Kiev, the, the Ukrainian government. It's not going to do this. It's not going to do it. This will go on and on and on until this contradiction reaches a resolution, meaning the antagonism, as we say in Marxist terms, develops on one end or the other, right? That's the struggle right now. That's the formulation of the class struggle. You want to apply uh, socialist Marxist concepts to this? Well, you have two sides here struggling for different sets of interests, right? You have Russia trying to preserve sovereignty, trying to gain stability in this region, trying to lead a multipolar world and defending itself from NATO encroachment and from the suicidal aggression. Then on the other hand, you have the U.S. and its imper the imperialists, the U.S., its allies, fighting for the profits of the military contractors, 
fighting for hegemony over Europe, fighting for so many of these kinds of interests, right? Fighting for whatever will be best for the financiers, for the military industrial complex. That's what the U.S. and NATO and the EU are fighting for. And, they, and, and the overall objective of that is weaken Russia, destroy Russia. That's the goal. So those are the compete. Those are the that's the contradiction. That's the struggle at play, and of course, with Ukraine, Twitter, and propaganda, and the new Cold War, and how this is shaped out, we it isn't talked about like that. It's talked about with hyperbole, right? Russia is imperialist. It's an aggressor. Uh, uh, the U.S. is democracy. It's fighting for democracy. Ukraine is a democracy. Uh, why wouldn't you want Ukraine to get weapons from NATO? Uh, it has to. It's under attack, right? All these oversimplifications, overgeneralizations, without any attention to that class struggle. So again, that's the kind of like how we need to, if we're thinking about this again from the theme of uh, Marxism, we need to apply these concepts to the actual existing class struggle before us on the global stage. And that's where it's at right now. And it's at a very acute point where someone like Dmitry Medvedev is willing to make these comments quite confidently and say, this is how it's going to go. And it's not going to go well for you. And both Russia and China have been saying this in various capacities, not as threats, but as warnings. And rightfully so, because one of the key elements of the class struggle is self-determination for oppressed nations. And Russia is oppressed nation. And despite China's rise, it still falls within the category of an oppressed nation because imperialism is trying to destroy it. And China is still, as it says in its constitution, as it says every in, in a lot of different areas, it is still in the primary stage of socialism, fighting under development, fighting uh, its status as an oppressed nation. So that's where we're at in the class struggle. Uh, that's, but, I, but I'm going to end the story there because it's getting late. I'm not going to be able to talk about the sanctions on China. So apologies on that. It's it's just mulling over though. There's no real, it's just, this was announced today that the Biden administration is considering economic sanctions, deeper ones around Taiwan. And this is around all kinds of things like the CHIPS Act and the CHIPS for Alliance and all of these attempts to strangle China economically. And I argue that it's going to go really, really badly if the United States decides to do this because the United States is not in the position. It's one thing to increase inflation over something like solar panels. Uh, well, not solar panels, but the, the materials like polysilicone and in Xinjiang and other things. You, you raise inflation, but it's not going to bring your economy down. But if you do broader sanctions on China than what already exists, the tech sanctions, and uh, uh, the things of that sort, it's going to real. I mean, if you think that these sanctions on Russia are bad, if the Biden administration decides to jump, and I think this might happen after the midterms, it could happen, jump to broad-based economic sanctions on China, this economic recession for the West and the United States will be incredibly painful. The, if you think inflation is bad now, just wait till China has to raise the prices of all of its products that the U.S. imports from China in order to survive, in order to stabilize its economy. Just wait till that happens because 
it will cause shock waves and ripples that have not been felt, I don't think, in the modern era. And I'm not saying that lightly because the 2007-2008 crisis was so painful. I mean, I know people who lost so much. I mean, arguably, my family lost a lot because of the skyrocketing cost of education, the need to refinance homes. It stripped people. I, I, when my father died, we had no wealth, none. The house was gone. You know, uh, my mother sold it for pennies on the dollar compared to what its value was. And there was nothing in the bank when he died. Nothing. No wealth. That's what the 2007-2008 crisis did to so many people at an even more acute level. Literally stripping people of their homes, of their livelihoods. And it's still happening. And, it, and it's happened again and again, like at least a couple more times since then. So if you think that's bad, now with the Europe situation, the prices of energy, the inflation, you think that's bad, wait until the sanctions come on China. Because China has the capacity. Don't underestimate China's socialist economy, guys. If you think Russia's economy is robust and can endure the shockwaves, of what the U.S. is placing upon it, just wait till you see what China does. <laughs> China has a banking system that is 80 plus percent uh, within the uh, 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 within the possession of the state, state-owned public banking. It literally makes incredible decisions all the time. Trillions of RMB planned going to certain areas. You think China is going to sit around and say? Oh, yeah, we're going to let you sanction us and we're going to do anything about it. No, they're going to intensify a decoupling process out of necessity and stabilize. They did it in 2007, 2008, stabilize the situation. It will not go well for the United States, though. China has the capacity to do that. It's not within its goals. It certainly wants to speed up opening up and reform along with common prosperity to speed up that project. It doesn't want any of this. But if it's the case, it's the case. They're already preparing with the semiconductors. They're moving fast on the next generation. They're moving fast, just like they've done with everything else. And it's all because, one, there's the goal, of course, to become a moderately prosperous socialist economy. Well, they've already become a moderately prosperous socialist economy. But to become a modern socialist economy by 2050, yes, of course. Raise the standard of living. Eliminate relative poverty. Of course, you want to get there, but it's also to protect China, to protect China from this outcome. People underestimate the reforming opening up process in this way. They say China's capitalist, China's capitalist. Don't you understand that reforming, reform and opening up, whatever you think about it, protected China's socialist system in ways that nothing else has protected any other socialist country so far? What China's been able to achieve because of reform and opening up is not just the poverty alleviation, not just the modern infrastructure, not just the rise in the standard of living, not just all of that. No, 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 no. You're, we're not seeing the forest from the trees here. The forest is by being able to maintain a socialist uh, economy and governance system amid a world capitalist 
pariah situation, right? The unmitigated expansion of capitalist hegemony led by the United States by being able to uh, protect itself by offering what it had in order to uh, uh, develop in advance and, and, and place itself as a key cog in the world economy, it is by far the most stable socialist country and arguably, arguably, if you want my true opinion, it's the most stable economy generally in the world right now because it plays such an important role and can meet its own national goals, its own political economic goals while participating in a world economic system that is literally rigged against socialist countries. But it can do so because of the way that it strategically maneuvered very complicated situations. So if the United States and its junior imperialist partners think that it can, um, if it thinks that it can sanction China without consequences two, three, four, five, six, seven times the um, consequences, they've got another thing coming, another thing coming. And I'll just share the announcement because I've already talked about the story, I guess. <laughs> Said I wasn't going to talk about the story today, but I did. So here it is, the exclusive uh, today, U.S. ways sanctions on, to deter Taiwan action. So here we have the Taiwan question. Impresses the European Union. That's what Taiwan is doing. So the United States is considering options for a sanctions package against China to deter, deter it from invading Taiwan. This after the United States literally broke the one China principle by having an, a multiple official visits, starting with Pelosi, then Ed Markey and his delegation, multiple times. Despite that, China is the one who's going to invade, right? The sources said deliberations in Washington and Taipei's separate lobbying of EU envoys were both at an early stage in response to fears of a Chinese invasion, blah, blah, blah. Give me a break. Fears of a Chinese invasion, of course. It's over and over and over again. But early phase to me means when the moment is right. And I think that could be after the midterm elections, tough on China. It could be right before them. I think that the U.S., of course, is the master of this situation and is going to play it how they want to play it. All right. In the EU, they're just vassals. Uh, yes, yes, master. Yes, master. Right they're, they're They're just going along for the ride. <laughs> oh, 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 geez. All right. They're just going along for the ride. So ideas to take sanction measures beyond... Already uh, sanctions beyond what already have been taken by the West to restrict some trade and investment with China and sensitive technologies like computer chips and telecoms equipment. The sources did not provide any details of what is being considered, but the notion of sanctions on the world's largest set economy and one of the global supply chain's biggest links raises questions of feasibility. <coughs> I already said that. The potential imposition of sanctions on China is a more complex exercise than sanctions on Russia, given U.S. and its allies' extensive entanglement with the Chinese economy, said uh, Nizak Nikaktar, former U.S. Commerce Department official. I'm, I'm going to stop there, right? Because this is all just claims now. There's there's nothing happening here. Um, I don't have to read this whole article. That's basically it, right? They're considering more sanctions. We have this CHIPS for... I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the CHIPS Act, the CHIPS and Science Act. They have all these subsidies. They're going to try to pry 
they're going to try to pry the um, tai Taiwan and South Korea, etc., from China, try to move that production so to the United States in some capacity, even though it costs a trillion dollars. I don't know how they're going to do that. The subsidies are woefully inadequate for that, but they're going to try to do that. They're going to raise the cost of everything. It's a disaster. It's a ridiculous even um, uh, uh, idea, right? It's a ridiculous idea, but that's what they're going to try to do. And I believe it's a political maneuver. So Biden's administration is thinking very carefully right now. As I said before, this could have real big shockwaves and the tech sector can't really take it. It can't take it. So if you're thinking about this from this perspective, just this one sector, if this were to happen, it could send shockwaves throughout the entire capitalist economy. And uh, uh, they are acknowledging that. That's why it's going to go slow and they're going to weigh political gain versus economic feasibility, right? And it's all imperious, imperialist machinations at the end of the day. It's all imperialist machinations at the end of the day to escalate with China, to build up to a Ukraine scenario, really, with Taiwan. It's different, as I've explained on this channel before, but they want a similar scenario to test out the, cap the, uh, the imperialist capitalists, these uh, warmongers. They want to test out the possibility of what a war with China would be like. They've been thinking about it. Center for New American Security, right? in the war room on Meet the Press. They're thinking about it, and they're trying to build up all of the different pieces, massive military buildup, economic sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, to get there. And so that's why it's so important to talk about China, to oppose war on China, to oppose anything like this, even the thought of it, to oppose it, to be at the front of that, right? That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be because this is incredibly dangerous and it's going to hit us the hardest. It's going to hit working class people and oppressed people the hardest. All right, folks, this was a good stream. If you know you want to support this work, uh, I've got a rebrand coming. It's, it's coming along. The, um, the banner is going to be changed. My profile picture, there's going to be a lot of changes. We're going to have a Rockfin debut. Got really cool things coming up just to announce. Really great things coming up. Tomorrow, Ben Norton, noon Eastern time. I have uh, Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so a really packed schedule on this channel. Should be incredible. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, this channel is growing. You know, it's growing. It, it, certainly it's growing. And we are, um, you know, we're staying principled as well here on this channel. I also want to say that if you support all this work, it's hard work, really hard work. Um, takes a lot to get the guests, to get the technology, to get all of this together, to do this rebrand. Um, a lot of labor goes into it. Please do uh, support this channel in what way you can. I appreciate all the super chats. I appreciate uh, Lewis and, and so many others who have given super chats today. Thank you so much. Uh, you can subscribe if you want to support this on a on a consistent basis. Uh, support this work because I also write articles. I also have an event, Friends of Socialist China, which I co-edit. Um, if you want to support all of this work that I do, uh, you want to go to. I'm going to post this event in the chat. I'm not going to talk about it tonight because I'm going to have I'm going to try to have Carlos on my co-editor. 
but it's going to be a great event. I'm going to put it in. You want to register already uh, just because it's in the chat now. Um, but all that work that I do, you know, Patreon is the best way to support all of it, to keep it going, to keep it sustainable. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's the, uh, you know, that's the path ahead uh, for me. That's the plans for this channel. And uh, yeah, onward and upward, everyone. Salute. Thank you so much for all of your support. And, um, you know, we're going to keep on keeping on here uh, uh, and uh, spreading the word of socialism, communism, anti-imperialism, and all of its different facets and attempt to really build this channel as a political education tool for people. That's why I do it. It's just one of the tools that I think is good for political education, for uh, masses of people interested in this. And uh, we know that these corporations don't make it easy because it isn't sexy. It isn't a niche. I can't just talk about one topic, right? I can't just talk about Ukraine all the time as much as I think that's one of the most important. Can't just talk about one thing, one thing. No, this is about all of it, the entire struggle. And that's what I'll end with all of you on. All right, everybody, before you go, you know, if you haven't already, uh, like the video hit that subscription button, hit that notifications bell, and subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Fong. You can support my work there. And there's many more links in the, ch in the chat um, as well. I mean, in the chat. It, it's in the chat, but there's many more links in the description as well. All right, everyone. Peace out. Take care. All power to the people. Bye-bye.